You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Just like we all go through open enrollment um, with our employers, um, Medicaid eligibles have a redetermination um, of eligibility on an annual basis, and no one's done it for three years. So it, uh, it, is, it is a big, big hill to climb. That was Amy Daly. That's just a teaser of what you'll hear later when she talks with us about the role commercial insurers play in Medicaid eligibility determinations. But first, June is Pride Month, and we're celebrating LGBTQ plus pride. So let's talk about that. 54 years ago to this day, June 28th, marks the beginning of the Stonewall Uprising. The Stonewall Uprising was a series of protests by members of the LGBTQ plus community. Many people say that it was the impetus for many organizations and initiatives on behalf of equal rights for homosexuals. And we've been celebrating Pride Month ever since. So 54 years. We've come a long way in half a century. But today, discrimination against queer people is on the rise. Attacks on the groups include things like restricting the use of preferred pronouns, and even banning gender-affirming care altogether. Some healthcare providers are asking what they can do to ensure that all patients feel safe enough to seek physical and emotional medical care. Dr. Ramon Jacob Shaw is Chief Clinical Officer at Belong Health. He was a founding member of the LGBTQ task force at NYU Langan Health, which helped NYU Medical Center earn a perfect score on the Health Equality Index. Jacob Shaw spoke with our reporter, Annie Berkey, about what care, discrimination, and support looks like for the LGBTQ community. Here they are. Ramon, thank you so much for taking the time to come speak with us today. Thank you so much, Annie, for, for having me on for today. I'm completely humbled by the whole process. Yeah, we're really happy to have you. And um, of course, this is Pride Month, and so this is timely, but it's also just an area I've been wanting to talk about on Podnosis. So I'm really excited to start. And I I think the the best way to start is at the very beginning, to quote Julie Andrews. Um, For audiences who may not know, what does LGBTQ plus stand for? And why is language an important way to start these conversations? Uh, Such a great question. Thanks for asking that, Annie. Oftentimes, people are so confused by the the rainbow alphabet that we have here with LGBTQ+. Um, And just to kind of level set, I'll I'll let people know what the the acronym stands for. So it's uh, lesbian, gay, transgender. Wait, let me start all the way. It's lesbian, gay, transgender. Uh, queer or questioning, um, and then the plus includes other other um, uh, parts of the acronym as well that just aren't aren't part of part of it as well. So I could be intersex. Um, uh, a is asexual. Um, so it includes other parts and other letters that are part of the acronym that are just not always put in that. So the plus is meant to include other um, identities um, in that that often aren't spelled out explicitly. Yeah, and I think two other ones that are sometimes included in there, sometimes not, are B for bisexual or P for pansexual. Exactly. Yeah, why do you um why do you think it's important to like start with that 
baseline of really clarifying, like, this is the language that's used in the space. This is the language that ensures for this community, for a patient, that they know that their provider is coming to them from the same groundwork. Yeah, I I think that most times um, the vernacular that we use within the, within the community, oftentimes people may not be using these words you know, frequently enough to like really be aware of what the, what the, the acronym means or what each of those words mean. Now I am sitting here saying, you know, the, the spectrum of what some of these uh, letters stand for, but it's each one of these letters are completely unique in their, in their own way. Now using the words and actually knowing what the words mean are a completely different things. But I think the first thing that it shows a patient is that someone knows the terminology enough to be able to say it um, in a space. So, so saying it and sharing it can help to create that safe space that many of our, many of our patients out there, many of our colleagues, many of our friends and family are really looking for. Yeah, I think that's a good point to make too. Like there is like an initial signaling that takes place of like, I have done a certain amount of education to know these are the words to say, but then the follow-up is like, does that actually indicate further education or does that mean you have just like learned, you know, the buzzwords to present yourself in a certain way? And um, we're, we're going to get into recent legal battles and direct discrimination against LGBTQ plus folks in healthcare. But I think it's important here to go deep and to say, let's begin with health itself. What are the some of the unique physiological and psychological challenges this group faces in their health and wellness journeys? Yeah, that's such a such a great um, great question. I mean, if you look at the the spectrum and look at any one of those identities, for um, for example, one of the things that always comes up for me, um, and I've kind of I my background is that um, I am a primary care provider. Um, I have been a hospital based doctor. I've taken care of patients in their home. I've taken care of patients in in places like skilled nursing facilities or nursing homes as well. To really have the spectrum of of environments and settings where people like trying to meet people where they where they are right. Um, so when I reflect on my journey, kind of over that history of taking care of people, I, I've seen people, uh, you know, and taking care of people in, in within the spectrum itself. So thinking about um, preventive care is one of those things, for example. Um, so when you're asking about the physiology or um, things that are specific to any one of those folks. I think about things like, like colorectal cancer screening. I think about cervical cancer screening, breast cancer screening, and who do those things and who do those preventive screenings apply to specifically? Um, oftentimes, uh, providers out there may be confused about that. So, so for example, um, if a primary care provider, and I'm using the word provider as as inclusive of physicians, non-physician providers like physician assistants and nurse practitioners, when they're seeing folks who uh, may identify as transgender male, depending on what, like if they've gone through any sort of um, um, gender affirming care, whether that's through medications or surgeries or, or none at all, Providers may be confused about what type of screenings to then do for breast cancer, whether or not that person even needs it or not. So if someone has had what we call a top surgery, uh, which is a surgery to remove both breasts, does that mean that someone needs to have mammography at all? 
Mm -hmm. uh, does that person who now identifies as a transgender man need to have cervical cancer screening um, at all? Uh, and so physiologically, everything is still there. It's just a matter of if the provider is knowledgeable enough about uh, that individual sitting in front of them and what they've gone through in their kind of like medical journey as well, mm -hmm. um, and whether or not they need to have those particular screening tests done um, at all. Yeah, I think we're talking like there's two real areas here. One is just education on like what patients yeah. need, how to support them. Um, in other prognosis episodes, we've talked about just like the lack of education in medical schools regarding uh, supporting these communities in the best ways. But I think we're also obviously talking about discrimination. So one in six LGBTQ plus folks have reported avoiding medical care due to fear of discrimination. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about how in a standard healthcare setting, what can overt, covert, and inadvertent discrimination against queer people look like? Oh my gosh. How much time do you have, Annie? Um, <laughs> that, that is such, that, I, gosh, you know, I think about my own experiences. I think about the experiences of like friends and family, but also what my own patients have shared with me about their experiences. Sometimes mm -hmm. those experiences in the healthcare setting, folks in the community could have experienced what we call microaggressions. Mm -hmm. So the microaggressions are just kind of subtle forms of discrimination may not be as overt to a bystander, for example. Um, and those microaggressions could look a number of different ways, right? It could be a, someone asking you, a provider or an office staff asking you um, if you're there with a, with a partner, for example, and if that partner is the same sex as you. One of those microaggressions, you, you could be asking, you know, which one of you is the, the husband or who's the wife in the relationship there. That's yeah. a form of microaggression, right? Yeah, uh, just totally. kind of like really kind of um, trying to ascribe some sort of heteronormativity to a mm -hmm. gay relationship, for example. So that's just one example. Uh, I've, I've had patients over the years who've had very similar um, experiences there. Or another form of microaggression, which people often use and still use today, which is mm -hmm. which is which is um, disappointing, is using the terminology like lifestyle. So trying to uh. say that that your whatever your gender identity or sexual orientation is is a lifestyle, or or worse, that it's a choice. Um, oh, like it's so, a hobby or something. Like it's a hobby, or like this is what I've this is what I've chosen to do for this year of my life for yeah. for these past X number of years, yeah. and that that's really sad that though that and that again that comes down to a lack of education, right? It's saying that that you as an individual um, have some sort of choice in in your sexual orientation or your gender identity there, um, and so my patients have often experienced those kind of subtle forms of discrimination. Now, when we talk about kind of m even more overt forms there, listen, I've had uh, patients of mine, friends of mine, who in the healthcare settings have encountered something that's really explicit, like, are you sure that you're gay, lesbian, trans? Yeah. Um, or have gotten, um, uh, you know, once a provider is found out or that's been divulged from the patient to the provider, um, having that provider either uh, refuse to touch them for an examination mm. 
cutting the visit short, uh, tone and mannerisms change during the course of those interviews or those um, provider encounters. Mm. Um, And how you're treated up front is just as important as how you're treated in in the back in the exam room with with your provider. Yeah, I I think that's that's something that we need to talk about more is like, these are the actual forms that this discrimination happens in. Because oftentimes if you read articles about like how to be an ally, it'll say like, listen more. And like, that's really intangible. I listen, I, gosh, you hit the nail on the head with the, the word intangible there. Like giving the advice to someone, and I don't know if you can tell, I get really worked up and passionate when I hear these kind of things. When, when someone uses those phrases of listen more, it's, it's such a passive, it's such yeah, a passive true. thing there, right? It's, I mean, ideally we want everybody to listen more in all forms for, for anything, whether it's you're taking care of uh, your patient who identifies, you know, uh, within the LGBTQ plus spectrum, or you're dealing with some other more vulnerable or marginalized population as well. And, and simply advising someone to listen more is, is really, I find it offensive. I, I frankly find it offensive. I think to listen more when we when going into medical school, that's what we're taught to do those things, mm-hmm. to sit down, to, um, to, to be as open as possible with our questioning for the patient sitting in front of us to, to, to sit ourselves down with the patient and not stand above them. So as not mm-hmm. to create some power dynamic or power mm-hmm. imbalance. Um, and we're, we go into medicine knowing that we should be listening. Like listening is one mm-hmm. of our, you know, within the medical profession and specifically for, for, for docs, it is one of our greatest diagnostic tools. Hmm. It's often one of our greatest uh, therapeutic tools as well to be able to just yeah. sit there, listen to someone. And, and oftentimes that space of just listening creates that safe space as well. I'd like to like zoom out here and look at systemic discrimination. Uh, You have helped shape hospital policies around visitation rights for LGBTQ plus partners. In addition to updating visitation policies, what are practical steps medical institutions can take to ensure that their facilities are safe and welcoming? Annie, you're just lobbing really great questions at me about all of this, and I really, really appreciate it. When it comes to how medical settings can be more open, more inclusive, and creating safe space for um, LGBTQ plus people, there is a plethora of things that ca- that can be done. Um, one of those things is having your staff at your institution, your office, your hospital, reflect the patients in the communities that they're serving. Um, and that just goes back to diversity, right? Um, having a diversity uh, uh, of um, folks that patients, when they come encounter that, they can hopefully see someone like them in these spaces that they're, that they're navigating as well. I think trainings are another big, big thing, right? Oftentimes you don't see the trainings. No one witnesses the trainings happening you see the outcome of those those trainings, right? Mm. And so this is like cultural competencies um, and specifically cultural competencies around um, how to care for the LGBTQ plus population. So how do you care for uh, someone who identifies as lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual, queer, intersex, asexual, pansexual, like you name it. Like There are wonderful, excellent resources out there for for providers to 
to, to get those trainings. Now, nowadays, a lot of people are getting those trainings um, in medical school, in nursing school, in physician assistants, like you name it, they're getting some, but it, but it's not, it, it's, it's overall, it's not enough. It may be weeks of training when you're going to be seeing these people throughout the lifespan of your, of your career. So trainings make, make a big difference. Um, having material in your office that's visible for LGBTQ plus patients is, is another helpful way. So mm-hmm. having pamphlets or brochures or some sort of information about LGBTQ plus health um, makes a big difference. I mean, gosh, I, I, I reflect back oftentimes and think, what if I, as like a young closeted gay man, would have walked into a provider's office and seen information that was that was mm-hmm. out? Um, yeah. To me, that would be a big clue that like they get it. Like yeah. this is important to a subset of the population that I take care of. And mm-hmm. if I have this information there for them to enjoy, listen, people who don't identify as LGBTQ plus can pick up the same materials and educate themselves as mm-hmm. well. But I often think, you know, as a young closeted gay man, like, what if I would have encountered something like that before? Would I have, you know, would would my journey look any different? Would I have, would I maybe have come out at an earlier age um, to someone like my provider, yeah. for example? Mm-hmm. Um, those things make a difference. There are a few other things I can I can go into if you'd like. I. I would like, honestly, we, um, I have so many more questions to ask you, but, um, I think this is really important. I think it's really important to like make these things absolutely concrete. Um, and walking into an office and seeing something like that signals you are safe. Are there other things like that, that either provide a service or, um, provide a door to something new or are a signaling tool of you are safe. Here is more care. Yeah. Um, Listen, it, it never hurts to put up a pride-related flag somewhere in an office setting. Yeah. That's another, it's in, really honestly, it's another visible clue, whether it's a sticker in your window or um, if you also, uh, if you're a provider um, that that either has specialty in caring in the care of LGBTQ plus uh, patients, um, okay. you've done some sort of training or you, you feel comfortable in the care of those folks, having yourself identified, um, whether that's on a, a banner or sticker kind of at the front of your office as such, or if you're part of like, there are directories out there. So, mm-hmm. so GLAMA, which is the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association, for example, um, sponsors a, a provider directory um, kind of nas- nationwide of people who um, care for for LGBTQ plus uh, patients out there. So if you're someone who has feels comfortable with that or has that training, being part of a directory where someone like myself or my patient could like look that up based on whichever region or geography they're in to say, hey, I want I want to look for a provider who gets it, who understands Mm -hmm. me, who's done the training, who has a comfort themselves in caring for people like me and and my community, looking from the comfort of your own home and doing that research is awfully helpful as well. And one thing that I pay attention to, and this is through the work I did with the advisory council at NYU, is I specifically look for those um, anti-discrimination policies, Mm. right? You have to have those in each office setting, in each hospital. I look for those when I come in the door and I'm, I'm at that registration or I'm at that front desk 
It yeah. should be there. It should be visible. And yeah. those anti-bias, anti-discrimination policies should be um, inclusive to, to include sexual orientation, gender identity in there mm-hmm. as well. So I look to make sure that's the case. Yeah. And I, I think there used to be the joke of rainbow washing of June came every corporation in America whipped out their rainbow logo um, and it didn't mean anything. Yeah. Things have changed a bit. Um, we saw most recently that uh, Budweiser included a trans woman in one of their ads. And uh, I think their sales took like a 4% hit or something like that. Like rainbow washing is not really existing right now because there are so many attacks on the queer community. Um, and specifically- I think people are fear. Yeah. I think people yeah. are fearful um, that is there going to be some sort of backlash from your from you as a provider, or as a group, as a, yeah. a, a medical system or something non, non, non-clinical or non-health related is there some sort of backlash that would come from showing some sort of support for the LGBTQ plus population? And I think that is a very real fear out there, right? I think that we saw that with the, with the kind of the Bud Light controversy um, there by including um, a transgender influencer um, um, as a part of like their, their marketing for that. And, and so that's one example um, of that. Um, But I think people, what it should not do is stop people from showing that support because the moment that, that we as a society, we as a healthcare um, um, uh, system, when we stop showing support for the marginalized and vulnerable people who need it the most, that's when people turn away. That's when people Mm -hmm. don't show up. That's when people say, Hey, I'm not supported in a space like healthcare, which is awfully important to, to me and my health we can't have people turning away from these places that are meant to help everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I think of, um, you know, the rights of transgender people in particular have become a center of culture wars within the country happening right now. Um, For listeners looking to learn more about that area, I would suggest our January Podnosis episode featuring my colleague Anastasia and chief medical officer, Jerrica Kirkley of Plume, um, which focuses exclusively on trans medical care. And, In that episode, Jerrica talks about providing care in a political climate. This, of course, is not only an issue with trans rights or queer rights, but also abortion rights. As a medical provider, how do you navigate a political landscape? Well, it's it it would be difficult to say that those those things are kind of happening outside of the exam room. Um, I think it would be really disingenuous to say the political landscape does not come into these into these conversations. The way I navigate those is that I don't bring up politics in in my discussions and my encounters with patients, mm-hmm. but I leave the space for them to talk about that if that's important to them, right? Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. shut down those those conversations, but if that's important to them, then then I want to be able to to hear that. I mm-hmm. I, I remember having a patient. Um, this was during my time at NYU. This was, uh, you know, maybe a couple of years after the Affordable Care Act was passed. Um, and there was lots of discussion kind of um, in D.C. about uh, whether or not things like Medicare were going to be taken away. Are we going to mm. dissolve it? Are we going to reduce it? Uh, Medicaid was was in that discussion as well and whether Medicaid was going to be influenced by cuts and, and all of that. And this guy had neither 
So he mm-hmm. qualified. Um, yeah. And so he came in with some um, rectal bleeding and that workup in the hospital showed that he had a colon cancer. He had a tumor. Oh my God. And he had avoided medical care because he was uninsured and feared that this discussion that was happening out there um, in the political realm was, was almost a matter of fact. Like these cuts were happening, that he couldn't get Medicare, that he couldn't get Medicaid when he really did qualify for those things. And thankfully, thankfully, we caught it at an early enough stage that that there was treatment available for him. But that's one example of how someone coming into your office, your hospital, um, really tangibly feels the effects of what happens in that political landscape and the conversations that are happening out there the misinformation that's happening out there in general and how that influences their engagement or unengagement with, with healthcare. So those things do influence our patients. And if they bring it into the exam room to have a discussion, let's have a discussion about how that's affecting you. And let's, let's, let's give you the right information. Let's help you navigate healthcare such that we get you the best care that you, that we can possibly give you um, because that's what, right? That's what we all deserve. No matter who we are. (laughs) I mean, this is, this is a subset of the population, but nearly a third of trans people avoid healthcare over fears of discrimination. And 80% have experienced suicidal ideations. Of course, suicide is the third leading cause of death for all adolescents age 15 to 19 years old. I mean, let's, let's zoom out here and talk about how questions to, to just expand on the story you just told, how questions of LGBTQ healthcare are questions for all of healthcare. I've often said this to folks, um, to students of all types, um, is the person that, that discriminates against one group or is biased against one group has the capacity to do it for many groups, right? So not just LGBTQ plus patients, um, you know, the same could be said for women, for people with disabilities, for immigrants, uh, people who come from a low income geography. And there were so many things there. And I think that when you're when we're talking about LGBTQ plus healthcare, we could also be talking about the experiences of someone else who comes from a marginalized uh, marginalized group. So it is important um, in general because we want people to feel as equally accepted in any healthcare space that they navigate, no matter what their identity or identities are. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to come speak with me and I would like to wish you happy pride. We're almost halfway through it. And it's, uh, <laughs> listen, June is, uh, it's great to see all of this happening through one month, but uh, the goal, right, is to celebrate all of these things kind of throughout the year. Um, so happy pride to, to you and to, uh, to our listeners out there as well. Thank you. Imagine a constellation of the most accomplished visionaries and trailblazers, handpicked by our brilliant editors here at Fierce Life Sciences and Healthcare. Well, hello, Fierce 50. Our new report is launching this year. These 50 people are the movers and shakers who are igniting change in healthcare delivery, drug development, research, and beyond. So spread the word and stay tuned because this is just the beginning of the Fierce 50 journey.
Historically, Medicaid programs have reviewed members' eligibility for coverage each year. However, those determinations were put on pause during the pandemic to ensure people had continued coverage. As of April 1st, states can now begin working through that hefty backlog of eligibility rulings, and there is plenty of concern across the industry that millions could fall off of the program. So what role do commercial insurers play in this process? Well, Fierce Healthcare Senior Editor Paige Minnemeyer posed that question to Amy Daly. She leads Elevance Health's Medicaid business. Here they are. Amy, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, so happy to be here with you. Thank you, Paige. Medicaid redeterminations are set to be a a dominating topic in the payer space this year, and many states expect to need at least a year to work through the pandemic backlog. To set the stage for, for our conversation, can you put the sheer size of this endeavor into context for us? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, when you think about um, the growth in Medicaid, uh, maybe is a good way to think about it from a contextual standpoint. Um, Over the previous three years, Medicaid eligible roles have increased over 15 million. Um, When you think about the breadth of it, and I I might get the the data a little little convoluted, but there's Medicaid in the broad sense, and then there's that which is in the MCOs. Um, Our growth has been relatively significant and every single member, whether you grew by 15 million or not, every member has to go through redetermination. So if you think about the breadth of who's in Medicaid, it's not just the growth, it's every person. And so I, as I said, I get the, the statistics, I think it's over 50 million people in Medicaid MCOs, closer to 80 or more in the, the broader sense. It's not just about those who grew in the in the pandemic, but it's about everybody because the pause was uh, for the entirety of, of, the, um, of the program, remembering that it's a very normal course, just like we all go through open enrollment um, with our employers. Um, the Medicaid eligibles have a redetermination um, of eligibility on an annual basis, and no one's done it for three years. So it, uh, it, is, it is a big, big hill to climb. You know, a major concern in the industry is that millions of people could fall off the rolls during the redetermination window. Experts at the Kaiser Family Foundation, for instance, estimated that 18 million people could lose coverage during this window. This is, you know, especially a challenge as many of the people at the greatest risk for losing coverage are hard for, you know, Medicaid organizations and and plans to reach. Uh, What are some of the challenges you're seeing there in the outreach? Sure. You know, one of the biggest things I think we all know, if, you, if you're in the industry of Medicaid specifically, is that Medicaid recipients um, are not, not in one place for an extended period of time. They don't tend to be in a home for 10 years, um, maybe move every three, six, nine months or a year, so, something to that effect. So you can imagine the challenge then in making sure you can contact them and keeping that contact information current is a challenge. And so then when you're trying to reach all of them for a really important interchange, being able to get that current contact information creates creates the uphill battle. What we have done in, in concert with both CMS and each of our state partners is really endeavored to do what we call address update campaigns, or um, we wear t-shirts, we pass out flyers, we, you know, ITs, we're walk, walking with sandwich boards in the in the street to get people's attention, because honestly, um, you know, just like you and I, I mean, these folks have jobs and families and things that they're taking care of on a day to day basis. And it's not the first thing on their minds to get their address information updated with the Medicaid state agencies. So the first thing is getting that awareness and attention to folks. 
Um, the second thing is to get that call to action, that not only do they need to update your address, that might not be the thing you think is the most important thing to do today, but if you don't update your address, we won't be able to reach you so that you can get that very important health insurance coverage. You just gave us some examples of, you know, how Elevance Health is, is thinking about outreach. You know, major concern here is that, you know, a lot of the, the people who are at greatest risk of falling off of the the program are, have never been through redetermination right. before. Oh, really? Um, True. It oh, yeah. is very true. A a recent analysis, another Kaiser Family Foundation analysis found that in several states, um, there have already been a, a number of disenrollments related to administrative issues. In Florida, for instance, disenrollments for procedural reasons were above 80%. Um, so how are you and your team thinking about tailoring that outreach to a population that really isn't familiar with, with this? So there's a couple of things. Uh, one thing I would say is... Um, you know, because of the inability to reach people, those procedural or administrative um, disenrollments are not necessarily surprising. I think it's, it. We, you know, the, the volume gets to be, I could not predict exactly what it will be in each state, but the fact that there's volatility doesn't, shouldn't surprise anyone, maybe I'd say it that way. And so what we've done is used sort of every way you can think to outreach to members, whether it be um, search, search engine technology, um, direct mail or old fashioned snail mail, emails, text messages. We also have um, an interface we call Sydney, which um, you can, as a member, you have an account, you go into that and there's ways that that immediately alerts you, hey, your renewal's coming up, here's what you need to do. So when you think about it, if you're paying attention to Medicaid, we want it to be so that everywhere you run into, you run into a reminder. Uh, and I'd be remiss if I left out the provider community and the community community organizations. So we have, I'll call them health fairs, but you've got people placed out in the community at YMCA's, at churches, at um, food banks, at, you know, at the stores that people frequent and say, uh, providing that information so that everywhere you can think we're reaching out to these members to get them to, to act. Because ultimately, and I think this is super important, I cannot, as an MCO, in almost all cases, do anything actively to help a member provide the information to the state. So we need to get them aware and then point them in the direction or of their state agencies to get those members in through the state agencies. You just alluded to this a little bit, but, you know, commercial insurers are, you know, limited in, in what they can do in terms of direct outreach to members. You, you know, you said it, this can't be a sales pitch, this outreach. Um, you know, what are the, the barriers there and how are you and your team kind of working within those those confines? So I, I'd start with something that um, if, if you weren't in the industry, you would not necessarily know about TCPA. And all of that is the kind of thing like that you and I are so happy that we cannot get robocalls 14 times a day. What it did over the, I can't remember how many years it's been, but as long as I can recall, and I've been in the industry for the majority of my career, uh, there was a, a lot of limitations that were interpreted from TCPA that I can't reach them now. I can't call you. I need permission from you for texts or outreach. And if in any way a member misunderstood, we would get pulled and you're on the no call list. The working with CMS um, and, the, and the government agencies, we were able to get for reinterpretation. And I'm, I'm not an attorney, so don't don't over interpret the words I'm using. <laughs> but 
Right. It allows us to say, look, we're healthcare. I mean, maybe you've seen, you know, when you, now all of the, uh, many times a healthcare provider calls you, it comes up healthcare. That allows a member to say, oh, I want to talk to you. And, and we're more likely to get response as a result. Um, I think the other thing, is, as I alluded to earlier, is really allowing us a little bit more flexibility in assisting the members. Um, that has just not been the case um, in almost all states in the country. There's a, a significant limitation for obvious reasons around protecting the membership. Um, but to allow us to help the states because they just don't have the capacity, I think, has really changed the game. You know, I've heard the adage before that, you know, when you've seen one Medicaid program, you've seen. We one, like to say that. <laughs> one Medicaid pro- yeah. Um, given that. Um, you know, what role are you kind of as a as a managed care plan taking in, in supporting these states through the process? And, you know, how are you thinking about meeting their really individual kind of needs and, and expectations? We're the second largest Medicaid company in the country. That means we should have insights because of that breadth that we can offer to our state partners. We should, and we have, I mean, some of the things I've talked about really were as a result of understanding through engaging with our state partners regularly about what their challenges might be and also helping them understand what we could do and helping CMS understand what we could do. So you can get the I use the word synergy of thought and insight and really be a leader in sharing the information um, that, that can make it easier. One thing we have done that I'm, I'm really proud of is um, a, a tool we call I'm looking to make sure it's called My Health Benefit Finder. Um, our, our innovators, you know, folks that think about these things in a way that I can't, um, the, IT, the IT bright mind said, you know what? If we could provide a tool that's pretty much payer agnostic, and and so it's not that it's not branded, but we're not looking to sell you anything. We're helping to educate you and doing it in a way that you can engage anywhere you are. Um, Most most everybody has a, a phone somehow, somewhere. And so this My Health Benefit Finder tool allows you to answer some simple questions. And it says, based on those simple questions, where are you most likely to qualify for care? You look like a Medicaid member. Based on the information you gave me, I can point you through this tool to your Medicaid website and off you go engaging there. Nope, you look like a Medicare. You look like you might qualify for exchange and it points you in the right direction. On top of that, another place that I think from a uh, United States, I'm trying to come up with the right word, how silly, from a country standpoint, for, we are we are a, a country of 50 different states, to your point, everybody is a little different. How you access SNAP and WIC benefits or other state-sponsored and or federally-sponsored programs, but they're within the state, this tool allows you, if you answer all these questions, here, let me show you where you can qualify insurance, but based on the answers you have, Here's some other things that you might also qualify for, and here's a way for you to access it, which really, when you think about whole health, which um, Elevance Health is is very much in the camp, as am I, of, of whole health being one of the most important ways to look at a member's health. And if we can get them access to the other support systems, that feeds a better health outcome for them more broadly. And so this tool, the reason I'm 
so proud of it is because it really is a way to get multiple channels of information to, to just help a member. It's not about as much as I want you to be my member. Ultimately, I'm just trying to get you information so you can make good decisions. Um, you've touched on this a little bit as, as we've been talking, but I want to dig a little deeper. You know, experts have kind of circled the the exchanges as an, a key opportunity to capture maybe people who sure. fall out fall out of Medicaid. How are you thinking about that pathway and maybe, you know, using tools like the the My Health Benefits that you were just discussing to really sure. help people understand that option? So again, if if you are in a state in which I have an exchange product, we have a lot of pathways in whether it be through our um, call centers passing you over. We ask you some questions as long as you're willing to answer them. We certainly don't want to be intrusive, but to to provide that um, insight and assistance, we we ask questions and based on those, we say, okay, we have an exchange product in your market. Let me pass you over to someone who can help you. Um, the Health Benefit Finder tool does the same thing. It points you over and allows you to give information to through this tool that we can call you back um, or or transfer you right into someone to have that um, interchange. I, I mentioned it earlier, but working with our states to allow us to take the information. So you state partner tell me that this group of people, this list of people this month is no longer qualified for Medicaid. We've done, you know, collectively all we can do, whether we, we've got actual information or we know they failed to be reached and get um, uh, eligibility criteria evaluated. We'll help you get, get back to that. But ultimately, we think you're exchange eligible. We can pass that list over to our exchange sort of team. And so when you think about Elevance Health, what we and, and our our, our um, executives in, in sort of broader sense talk about this catcher's mid idea. We can be anything you need. We can be Medicaid. We can be exchange. We can be Medicare. We can be commercial. From front to back, we have a product for you. And in the places where we don't, then that's where we're providing information where you can get to the federal exchange or the state exchange through other MCOs. But I really like, um, again, both the, the tool itself that's that's payer agnostic, but then the the interchange with the state partners, because it wasn't, we didn't have that ability before. You couldn't take the disenrolled Medicaid members and hand that list um, over to your exchange uh, partners. Now, that's not true in every state, just to make sure I'm being clean from a compliance standpoint. I mean, it's only within the states that allow it, but a lot of them saw the wisdom in it um, insofar as really being able to make sure there wasn't a significant gap in coverage, which there will be. I mean, it, it's, it's somewhat unavoidable, but our goal is to minimize those gaps as much as we can. You know, we're we're sitting down to have this conversation just a couple of months into this process, you know, and states are, you know, as we mentioned before, expecting to need a year or more to fully clear these right. determinations, you know, and many haven't didn't start on April 1st either. Um, Centene executives. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Centene executives said in Q1 that many of the states they work with did not select starting in April, but between May and July. So there are many That's who right. aren't even started yet. Um from your perspective, I mean, what do the next several months look like and should and what should we be watching as, as kind of the redetermination process continues? So I was actually meeting earlier today with my team. Uh, for, for us, every state in which we do business will have started by July. I would expect some variability. Mm -hmm. Use your quote, you know, one state means one state. Um, each state capacity will be different. Each state process will be different. And so insofar as those differences create variances, that's, I think we should all be prepared for that. 
but what you'll see is a lot of up and down. Um, and so what we'll do and, and we'll actively do is work with our states to make sure that we're doing everything we can to help them with that contact information and, and the re-enrollment. So I, it wouldn't surprise me if you saw some evolution in what states are willing to allow us to do um, and just by nature of them needing the assistance. And, and we're, we stand ready to do so. I and mean, we, we certainly don't want to create more noise than there already is. Um, but we think we can really we have, you know, pretty decent access to people um, that and, and mechanisms and processes that allow us to engage. Um, and again, through the provider community, being able to have that interface um, really will help us, I think, get to the members. Awesome. Well, Amy, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you very much. I uh, really this is the, one of the most important things that we can do. And I appreciate talking about it with you. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find out more about everything you just heard, including the Fierce 50, at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week is July 4th, and we're off on Monday and Tuesday. So subscribe to our show right now so you don't miss the next episode on July 12th. Tune in then and every Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat. What are practical medical... Oh my gosh... Oh, so if on occasion I go bop, 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 I did not design it, but that is my, I'm going to start again and try something new. <laughs> it's my rewind sound. <laughs> like, bop, bop, bop. no, 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 i got to start over. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I love it. I might use that in my executive call later on today with my team. Trigger warning. I make weird sounds like a robot. <laughs> I love it.